welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally, and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Anne Pettifor to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Anne is a British economist who advises governments and organisations. Her work focuses on the global financial system, sovereign debt restructuring, international finance and sustainable development. Anne was one of the leaders of the Jubilee 2000 debt cancellation campaign and is a member of the Green New Deal group of economists, environmentalists and entrepreneurs actively working to shift the world away from fossil fuels. Thank you very much, Anne, for joining me once again on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. That's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. For listeners that uh, uh, haven't heard our earlier interview, maybe if you could just uh, tell us a little bit about your background, Anne, and your current work focus. Right. So I, um, my background is actually in the world of uh, sovereign debt, uh, and in particular the debts of the poorest countries, and I began there and worked on a project for cancelling about $100 billion of debt owed by about 30 of the world's poorest countries. And that got me very interested after that, after that project was over. I wanted to understand why the international financial system is as skewed as it is and as unbalanced as it is, and, and why it has evolved in such a way as to build up enormous quantities of debt across the world, sovereign debt. And, uh, and then I discovered Keynes and the international monetary system and Keynes's work on monetary theory and policy. And he's overwhelmingly concerned, in my view, with monetary theory and policy and not with fiscal policy at all, um, and believes that if you fix the financial system, it's possible to stabilise the economy, the rest of the economy. Anyway, um, and then I, I wrote... I published a book in 2006, which the publisher insisted on calling the coming first world debt crisis. And I hated because I thought it would by September 2006, I thought the crisis would have come and my book would be out of date. And that was quite wrong uh, because it took until August 2007 for the crisis to break. But then subsequently, I became known as one of those that predicted the crisis. And, and since then, my work has focused on the international financial architecture and how unbalanced and how unstable it is and how much it inhibits the capacity of governments, of dem democratic governments, to undertake the kind of transformation needed for us to tackle climate breakdown. Um, 
And that's that's and then I, I was one of those that co-authored the Green New Deal in 2007-8, which was later adopted by the by AOC and the others in America and the United States. But we wrote it here in Britain. And then in 2019, I think it was, I published a book, um, The Case for the Green New Deal. Wonderful, wonderful, really important work. And I'm looking forward to uh, diving into some of those uh, topics, which are very timely indeed. Um, but just to, before we go in any further, I'm just wondering, you know, we're still dealing with COVID, um, the invasion in Ukraine, uh, all kinds of economic problems generally. But I guess looking at things from an environmental perspective, uh, I'm just wondering what in particular is on your mind right now and would you say worries you the most about this moment? So about this moment is that... Um we um we are unprepared for the biggest shock of all actually um which is you know the collapse of of the life support system that <laughs> enables humanity to survive on a livable planet and i i don't think we're ready for the shock for when it'll hit it's beginning to hit of course it and invariably like the financial crises the shocks begin in the periphery and they move gradually towards the core um and I suppose it'll take a mostly calamitous shock to wake up, you know, New York, London, Frankfurt and Tokyo to the scale of the threat posed by climate breakdown and biodiversity collapse. And the really shocking thing is that despite knowing about this threat since, what, the 19th century, but since being acutely aware since 1990, we have done absolutely nothing to reduce carbon emissions. We carry on piling up the carbon load into the atmosphere. And of course, once in there, carbon is pretty much permanent. And so what we're dealing with is a stock. We've built up a massive stock of carbon and we're just adding to the stock. We're doing nothing to reduce the stock. Instead, we're fiddling around with negative emission technologies. We're talking about offsetting, which is a way of saying plant a tree and then you can build a new airport. Um, we're, you know, we're doing everything possible to defer the facing of this threat. And in the meantime, we have overlapping crises, financial crises. You know, since 2007, we've had overlapping financial crises. Uh, the, 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 the global economy has never recovered from 2007-9. Um, and then these crises have manifest, these financial crises have manifest themselves as trade wars on the one hand, and then ultimately as real wars. Um, and, uh, in my view, they are all linked. And if we were to just manage to stabilize the financial system, we could begin to think about stabilizing the trading system and then also trying to stabilize the climate system. I think what I like about what's happening in Russia at the moment, there's very little to like about it. What I like about it is that it is exposing the degree to which capital mobility and the international financial architecture enables kleptocracy, enables theft and fraud, <laughs> and, and enables the looting of whole states. And, um, and then that in turn causes social tensions. Why should it not, really? Um, and it's all fully exposed. This, this now is now fully exposed. The, the, the way in which the international financial architecture enables that level of corruption, which in turn enables political upheaval. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so, you know, until we fix the system, it seems to me, uh, we're not going to be able to deal with 
political instability, political authoritarianism, Brexit, Trump, you name it. These are all reactions to a very un, unstable, unbalanced global economy. But more generally, I mean, you've been looking closely at uh, you know, the evolution of the economics, the politics yeah. uh, around climate change for uh, global warming uh, for, for decades. Do you see uh, any seeds and any, and any uh, elements there that, that give, give rise to optimism? Absolutely. I see the youth. I see young people. I see young people who cannot be lied to and who, you know, are truth tellers. Um, so that that gives me a great deal of hope. My my worry is that I and you, we that have grey hair and white hair, are the ones that have created this mess. And we're now looking to that younger generation because they have an awareness and understanding that we we seem to not be able to face. And um, and and that awareness, that willingness to face the truth, the hard truth, is what's going to empower them to do something about it. But I fear that we've just left, we're just passing on, you know, uh, this carbon burden onto their shoulders and expecting them to invent all kinds of new ways of dealing with it into the future. So that is, makes me optimist, but, but I am naturally an optimist. And so, which is why I always point to the fact that come the crunch, Humanity has been able to show leadership, individuals, countries, uh, groups, collective organizations have stood up and, uh, and taken the initiative and taken the lead and, and led a transformation. And of course, I'm particularly inspired by the experience of the Roosevelt administration, and, and not just because they tackled a climate crisis, which was the Dust Bowl, or an unemployment crisis, or the crisis of Wall Street, but because they tackled, he tackled on the night of his inauguration, Roosevelt tackled the global financial system, which at that time was called the gold standard. It was, you know, today's globalization in that in that that time's money, if you like. Um, it was globalization. It was government by Wall Street. And he said he and Morgenthau, his uh, finance uh, secretary, treasury secretary, said we moved the government from Wall Street and London. He mentions London to my office at the Treasury. And that, you know, was a democratically elected government, which then took charge of the economy and said, look, we're we're going to make this work to create jobs, to tackle climate, to tackle the, the Dust Bowl, to finance uh, John Steinbeck's writing of great novels, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to do this. Wall Street would have prohibited that or inhibited that. But instead, a democratic government responded to demands from below and did it. So that gives me... It gives me inspiration. And, and so I know that it's not impossible. I know that we can do this. Humanity is quite capable of doing this. It just takes a bit of courage and leadership. You know, it's, it's fascinating you, you point to that moment because I suppose uh, today the, the power of finance, the power of deregulated finance, the power of yeah. private finance is uh, yeah. maybe at an acme. It's, it's, it's certainly at a, some kind of all-time high. And uh, the way in which uh, 
dealing with the climate uh, issues and environmental issues is framed is usually around this uh, kind of deficit, this uh, capital that needs to be, we need capital to deal with it. Yeah. And where's the capital going to come from? And there are various uh, initiatives to, to, to source private capital and to make it attractive for private capital to uh, get involved and, uh, and, and provide capital to deal with the issues, uh, the challenges and, and not, through the state, right? Uh, what was at the, as you say at the time with Roosevelt, and indeed, you know, has continued until maybe the last thirty years or so uh, with changes in, in the way we, we see finance and the role of the state. I mean, this, the sums of money involved uh, that are being talked about are, you know, they're eye-poppingly large. The state can access this uh, access capital at, at a lower cost. Do you think that this the question of investment of state support for the kinds of changes we need uh, and it's uh, inability of the state to do that is overplayed. I do, absolutely. Um, I just want to go back to your first point about the power of the private finance sector. In fact, the private finance sector is not that powerful. I, I, I want us you know, not to blow up or to exaggerate their power. What we've witnessed from 2007 onwards is how parasitic Wall Street and the City of London are on public finances or public financed institutions without the Federal Reserve, which, by the way, for whatever you may think of it, is a state financed institution, depends for its power on the fact that it's backed by something like 60, I don't know, 70 million American taxpayers, if not more. And, you know, a a civil servant um, who is appointed by the president, uh, not, not elected, uh, but also not a technocratic a technocrat that appears out of the stratosphere. You know, um, this is a political appointment. These these are institutions that are public institutions, and if they weren't, they could not have come to the rescue of Wall Street. And so, to watch Wall Street and the City of London and and all the big fin- financial uh, nodes so dependent on public resources. Uh, to bail them out, A, of crises, and B, to de-risk their activities. And this takes me back to Mariana Matsukata's work and and about what a mouse the private sector is when it comes to taking risks. I know you've had Daniela Gabor on, and Daniela has done a great deal of work on private sectors demand that the state, the taxpayers, should de-risk their activities. This is not free market capitalism. This is Soviet-style communism, really, where, where, you know, I'm not going to risk investing in planting trees in Africa unless you, the taxpayers of the United States and Britain and elsewhere, guarantee my losses, guarantee that I do not make losses. And I was very struck because the very first thing John Kerry said when he was appointed as climate envoy by Joe Biden, at the very first press conference, he stood there and he appealed to not just to Wall Street, but in particular, um, you know, to to the big asset managers and um, and said, look, please, you 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 manage trillions of dollars come to our aid. And they have offered peanuts since COP26 and they're not able or unwilling or unable to take the risk of investing uh, the funds that they're meant to look after, but which they invest, for example, in Russian assets, which which are now looking uh, as to be loss-making. Um, they're not willing to, to risk investing those assets in sound activities that will generate income and restore uh, 
ecological stability in places like Africa. So it's been rather pathetic watch politicians go on their bended knees to Wall Street and for Wall Street just to ignore that, really. And yeah. and and I think that's right, because why should Wall Street do this, really? Um, is there a capital shortage? Not at all. No, there is no capital shortage. I know you've got mixed feelings about the modern monetary theory. and But uh, if you go back a few years ago, uh, and, and we've always been told, you know, there's no such thing as a money tree. Obviously, with COVID, you know, vast amounts of debt were taken on by governments. Now we've got vast amounts of military spending commitments coming down the the road um so for, for certain kinds of things you know money is available the capital is there how how should we think about this you know because when you hear these sums of money yeah. um and mckinsey did a recent report on the cost of you know decarbonizing the economy which has been roundly criticized uh and carbon brief and so forth have analyzed it, and they've left out a lot of the the other side of the the, the revenues the, the the benefits that come from these investments but the way in which it's framed the vast sums of money um and and you say at the moment you know wall street yeah. have said no but they are the various financial multilateral institutions are very active in terms of building the kinds of private partnerships public private partnerships that would work in their favour. So it's likely, I wonder, that they will get involved uh, on their own terms. But how should we think about this question about the sums of money? Because, you know, if you think about the global economy, well, once you start to get to these kind of figures, it's very hard to parse them and to work out what it actually means, you know, break it down per year. And then you think, actually, it's not just a cost. You've actually got to think about all the ways in which, you know, this infrastructure as well, the green infrastructure would enhance productivity and all those kinds of things. Yeah, so if we think of capitalism as going on forever in the form that it currently exists, then um, to finance that, to finance exponential growth and exponential extraction of finite assets is not just expensive, it's bloody well unaffordable, really. So we have to think of a different economy and we have to think of living, if you like, more simply. We have to think of living with less carbon. We have to think of an economy which is not based on fossil fuels. Now, that's unthinkable for today's capitalists because carbon is so, fossil fuels are so immensely profitable. One of the reasons why there's a, a failure to invest in green technologies, in clean technologies, is they're not half as profitable as oil and gas. And until we understand that, the fact that the price may be lower than oil and gas is neither here nor there. The fact is the profit lies with oil and gas, right? And so there is no way that the people making all that money from oil and gas can imagine a world in which they don't make that amount of money and they don't use oil and gas. And that's how we have to begin. And that's why it requires the state. Now, I mean, in my view, you know, this talk about, oh, it's going to cost all so much money and so on. And it is. It's going to be like going to war. And you're going to have to mobilize resources and only the state. We have designed, we as a human civilization have over centuries developed and designed the state to be a place where we can collectively organize and mobilize massive efforts, financial and otherwise, to, to guarantee our security. Right now, the fact that we might say, sorry, we've designed this thing that Hobbes called Leviathan, the state, uh, which is our collective body. Uh, we're going to set this on one side and we're going to invite individuals to take over and run the show. You know, we can ask individuals to fight our wars for us. That's crazy. That's crazy economics. And it's crazy when it comes to thinking about 
about our futures. Now, when it comes to money, there's such a gross misunderstanding of money. We have, you know, the capacity to create money is is a social construct. It's it's not a commodity. It's not a thing which is finite. It's our ability to say to each other, I promise to pay. I promise to pay in the future. Um, and, of course, many people will say, well, you're making promises for the future, for, for future's children. You're putting a burden on the children's future. And I thought um, the president, the ex-president of Ireland, Mary, the other day said the right thing. She said, we have to spend their, we have to spend the money in order for them to have a future, basically. And, and so, you know, I, I have a big problem with how much it's all going to cost. I don't think, number one, it's going to require us to use less carbon, less fossil fuel. It's going to mean less, um, a different lifestyle. I mean, I have to get out of my car and onto a bicycle or an electric bicycle, right? It's literally a shift away. And um, and that's not going to kill me. In fact, it's probably going to be quite good for me. Um, I'm going to have to grow my own food, probably. Uh, I'm going to have to learn to be more self-reliant. I'm going to have to learn that I can't rely on Kenya to draw on its water table, which is there for its own people, and to draw on its own um, ecological resources to give me green beans to put on my dinner plate for 365 days of a year. That ain't going to happen in the future. And when we start thinking about that, we can then start thinking about how the activity, the money we have to raise has to be sort of local in a way. It's got to be for what we can do here. And then it has to be a, a kind of money which enables us to work in uh, coordinate and to work cooperatively across the world. As you say, there's the credit and so forth. There's a social construct and within a national boundary in general. Yeah. What about the sums of money that are going to be required and that we need to provide for countries in the global south that face a very different set of yes. issues? You know, they're developing, growing economies and and a need for energy and so forth, a need for capital to make the kinds of changes that are necessary. We've had the Bretton Woods, IMF. You know, we've managed to create some kind of international credit vehicles, as it were, and the special drawing rights and so forth. Could one not envisage something similar like that when it comes to the green economy? I don't think so. I mean, I, our problem is that we we think in those terms. We think in terms of a dollarized global economy. We think in terms of you, Malawi, cannot survive without my U.S. dollars or without U.S. dollars that are you know, provided by the IMF. Where, in fact, what we should be thinking of is why Malawi doesn't have her own monetary system and her own fiscal system and why we've worked so hard over the last three decades. And I'm quite expert in this. The extent to which we've discouraged Malawi from developing the public institutions that would give her monetary resources. Instead, we've encouraged her to focus on exports and to rely on borrowing dollars from the rich world in order to feed her people. And that's crazy economics. We have to stop. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't share with Malawi and we shouldn't in particular help Malawi because she's uh, suffering from our emissions largely. But so cooperation, sure. But actually autonomy for, and I'm an African, I grew up in South Africa. I feel very strongly about this. Those countries do have resources. Africa is rich. Nigeria has masses of oil and gas. South Africa has oil and, and other, you know, they, they have, they have the sun. They have water. They have massive rivers. They have the resources 
to to manage it themselves. But this idea that actually we have to rely on an institution in Washington to dish out dollars in order that a country should be autonomous and manage its own crises. Now, you know, of course we have to coordinate and cooperate. And I'm an internationalist in that sense. But the idea, it's, but it's a very patronizing way of thinking about these things. But the lessons from COVID don't suggest that there's a very open-hearted, uh, generous way of looking at things from the developed world to the global south. Yeah, I, I think that's because we're, we're, we're governed by private corporations and not really by states. You know, but I've watched this Russian crisis in, in Ukraine, and I've watched the empathy around the world. I've watched how people will do anything to help save those people, right? Um so we know there's huge human capacity there, but we're not governed by governments. We're governed by markets. You know, there is a market out there called the oil market. I don't know who runs it. I don't know who's in charge of it. I never voted for anyone that fixing that price. But at the moment, someone is fixing a massive price for oil and making huge profits out of it. And I can do absolutely nothing. My government can do nothing. And I'm told just to suck it. And, you know, that's it. So we, we've constructed an international system which is governed by markets and corporations, invisible markets and corporations. And we wonder why people feel alienated and, and angry and pissed off. You know, They felt like that in the 1930s too, and they turned to a strong man to defend them from those markets. So you talked at the beginning about the, the, the financial system being skewed, unbalanced, and we need to stabilise it. What, what do you mean by skewed and unbalanced? I mean that it's designed to serve the interests of the 1%. Ask the Russian kleptocrats and they will tell you that this system was designed to suit them so they can buy yachts, park them wherever they want in the world, shunt their money across the world, hide it away in tax havens. That is the deliberate design of the international system. In what way? What does that mean? What, was, what are the elements that were designed in such a way to enable that reduced hope? Capital mobility and control over all the major levers of the economy. The decision about what rates of interest will be charged. Now, the rate of interest is also a social construct. It's not a mark, it, it's not a result of supply and demand for money. I decide the level of risk associated with this loan and I fix the price if I'm the bank or blah. So we decide we've left the big decisions, the big levers of the economy, capital mobility, the rate of interest, the exchange rate and the flow of investment entirely to invisible players called the markets. And we have no control over this. And, and I don't know if you know of the work of Karl Polanyi, but he wrote in 1944 that the cause, the rise of Hitler, was caused by the fact that the German felt, the German people felt that when they turned to their politicians, the politicians said, we'd love to help you, darlings, but we can't because, you know, this is beyond our control, the market. The market decides. And people said, well, if the market decides, then can I please have a strong man to protect me from the market? Yeah. And Polanyi, I think his analysis applies very, very much to the circumstances we face today. Recently, uh, we seem to have seen some movement towards a more state-oriented response to yeah. our state involvement, I guess you could say, in the economy in various different ways, whether or not Biden will deliver on what his initial promise was or how that's uh, playing out. But during COVID and the, the kind of debts that have been taken on, the, 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 the way in which the government supported the economy and, and, and so forth. Um, do you see that as, as, as continuing? Do you see that as a trend? As you say before, we were told 
want, you know, uh, the governments can't control this and they can't control that and yeah. and, 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 and so forth. Did you see a trend towards that? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, the state nationalized the economy during COVID. The state nationalized the banks in 2007-9, effectively. You know, they it's so extraordinary. We nationally we effectively nationalized the NatWest Bank here in Britain, but we left private managers to carry on running it. It was so it's so bizarre. <laughs> so you know, what I want to stress is this. The private sector pretends that it's autonomous. It pretends that it can take risks and make losses and face those losses, face the discipline of the market. The private sector today is incapable of facing the discipline of the market. It demands taxpayer protection. It demands protectionism of all of its of its investments and the possibility of losses. That is so that is Soviet style economics. And and what I want to stress is this yes. that we, the taxpayers, have no idea that we're playing this virtuous role of bailing out these guys that are making billions out of us. We yes. sort of innocently think that's because they happen to be very clever, that they're very rich. <laughs> uh, you could call it the socializing risks and privatizing profits and the tendencies. Is that uh, on the horizon again? We talk about stranded assets. Is that a possibility? Do you see that? Uh, I, I think Daniela talks about something called the carbon shock. There, there will be stranded assets. Fossil fuel companies are not doing enough right now, to, doing anything in many cases, to, to deal with these risks. Is this a risk that's going to end up on the taxpayer again? Of course it is. You know, And, you know, I don't... I don't even mind the taxpayer bailing out in a sense, because if it requires the taxpayer to bail out the system in order to maintain some sort of order and stability, fine. What I do mind is there are no terms and conditions, right? Yes. So the terms and conditions on the oil company should be thou shalt not pay dividends to thou shareholders. Thou shalt not uh, exploit anymore. Blah, thou shalt close down. Blah. We, we need to be able to say that we will help these companies in the transition, but on terms and conditions, not unconditionally. And because taxpayers are so helpless and so ignorant of the fact that the whole edifice depends on them paying their taxes every year. And, you know, I pay my taxes, I resent them deeply. <laughs> <laughs> Once a year, I have to deal with HMRC. And and I wonder how these billionaires get away with not paying. How Amazon doesn't get to pay any taxes at all. And, 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 and there's that injustice, but there's also the fact that if I didn't pay my taxes, sterling would be worth nothing. The Bank of England would have no power. The governor of the Bank of England could not invent something called quantitative easing. Yes, yes. Um, you know, the, the Wall Street could not get access to Britain's valuable gilts, which earn rent every month, basically, or wherever. Yes, you know yes, what I mean? Yes. All of that depends on the fact that I pay my taxes and and the, and the market knows, the, the Wall Street knows that for the next 30 years, the British people will be paying their taxes, at least as long as they're employed and not made unemployed. And just as they have over the last 100, 150, 200 years, right? That's yeah, what gives yeah. the central bank its power. And yeah, we yeah. as taxpayers ought to understand that in order to begin to demand terms and conditions. 
Yeah, very, very interesting point. Um, can you talk a little bit about the evolving role of central banks or the general role of central banks? Um, I know there's initiatives to greening uh, the central banks, but they play a crucial role in determining, I guess, the the the, the cost of of credit for all kinds of institutions and and their ability to distinguish, I suppose, between green activities and non-green activities or brown activities to to change the relative costs and so forth. So two things. Number one, you know, central banks are public, publicly financed, publicly backed institutions, and the staff in central banks are civil servants. I want to hear no talk of the governor and no talk of the power of the governor. The governor is a civil servant of the state. Um, and so that I want to begin with that point. And my second point is central banks have become autonomous, have become detached, have become dominant. Monetary policy has become dominant and fiscal policy become conservative. What the first thing we have to understand is that we've got to get central banks and monetary policy and fiscal policy to be working in tandem. And at the moment, they work in opposition to each other. It's crazy where you have massive quantitative easing by the central banks, massive creation of liquidity aimed at the private sector, aimed at Wall Street in the city of London, at the same time as you have contraction of investment and activity uh, thanks to fiscal policy. So austerity across Europe, austerity here in Britain under Osborne and Co., and to an extent in the United States. That has to end. Central banks have to be pulled back and made aware of the fact that they are servants of the state, not of Wall Street and the City of London, servants of the public sector of the state and begin to act like that. And I think they have become, uh, governors have become so incredibly self-important. It's unbelievable, really. They are now, they govern the world. Uh, there can be no em- emperor that has ever been as power, powerful as, as, as uh, Jerome Powell. And that is utterly ridiculous. He's a civil servant. How do you get the power back? The power back is to subordinate the uh, the central bank to the interests of, first of all, the domestic economy. So this is where I'm pure Keynes. You know, Keynes argued that what was really important was that monetary policy and fiscal policy should be aimed at restoring stability at home. And home could be the boundaries of the state. It could be the boundaries of a region. You know, Africa could have regional blocks where the, where the, where monetary and fiscal policy would work to, in tandem. When you say restoring stability, what's that mean? That means that we need uh, investment and employment and income at home. And we need investment in, in the green transformation. We definitely need employment. We need to create employment. I believe that we've got to substitute labor for fossil fuels, get on your bike rather than drive a car. And, th- and that means, there's, there, in my view, there has to be more work, more employment uh, at home. And that, in turn, will generate income, both for the individuals concerned and the, and the firms, the profits and so on. But it will also generate tax revenues for repaying the investment by the state in, in the greening of the economy. So right now, all economies are oriented towards the global economy, oriented towards exports, oriented towards uh, raise, you know, acquiring dollars. I would want to see it reoriented towards the domestic. I would like the Americans to look after the American people, frankly. You know, I would like to see the American people 
um, stabilized in jobs and having income and being able to to face their challenges. They've got massive climate challenges uh, already: fires, wildfires, floods, what hurricanes, you name it. Yeah, I'd like to see American people looked after. Right now, the American economy is aimed at, at satisfying the interests, if you like, of the one percent in the global economy. So that reorientation away from globalized economy towards the domestic economy in the first place. And then, of course, the question then becomes, how do we work internationally to help each other? You know, Britain's very small. Can we manage this on our own? Europe is a wider cluster of states. Can they work together? And is that more effective? What about how we work with Africa? How do we um, help them acquire things that they don't have, they can't produce at home, uh, but may need to in their transition and so on? And that would then require international coordination in exactly the same. That's what we did between 1945 and 1971. The architecture of that period was designed to encourage international coordination and cooperation because they had learned from the 1930s when you do not have international coordination and cooperation, you get wars, essentially. And and so, you know, the, the architects, which, you know, White and Keynes and co. were very clear. They could see what had caused the catastrophic collapse of the economies of economies and of states in 1930s and 40s and required international. And so we had the period which everyone, every economist calls the golden age of economics, 45 to 71, of international coordination without having this fixation on the globalized economy and on the 1%. So the bank, to come back to your answer, central bank governments have got to pay attention to their people and stop looking after the interests of the the 1% um, and and the finance sector. Yes, yes. Years ago, we were told, you know, that the cost of uh, greening the economy was, you know, very, very large and uh, the state didn't have the capacity to do it. And and then on top of that, we've had the massive state borrowing, increased in borrowing to deal with COVID. Now we've got massive military spending coming up. Uh, We've got uh, growing inflation. Uh, How how does that manifest, do you think, in terms of... uh, the, the, the kind of constraints that uh, economies are facing going well, forward. You know, we have all these costs. We have the cost of war. We have the cost of militarization because the system is kind of completely out of control and in a terrible mess, really. Um, so partly the costs are ra- raised by the nature of the international financial system. So, you know, in order to lower costs, in a sense, we have to change the system. But, I mean, there's only... I mean, there, I'm not. I'm not one who believes that there's infinite supplies of money. Of course, there aren't, and and I'm I'm of the firm belief that if we were to create money, and we we know that credit, credo, I believe you're going to pay, is is something that is simply a promise. It's just simply a social construct. You can create excessive amounts of credit, but unless that's invested in economic activity which generates income and with it the revenues needed to repay the credit, you're not going to have a stable economy. And right now, you know, it was very interesting to me through the whole Osborne era. Osborne, at a time of economic failure, the the monetary, monetary policy was allowed to become dominant and do as it pleased and look after the finance sector, and the domestic economy was contracted, and he hoped to reduce the deficit, and all that happened was the deficit rose. So we have high deficits, we have imbalances, because we don't have enough investment, enough economic activity, enough income. And um, 
And so the focus has to be, first of all, in my view, on creating the credit needed at home to invest in greening the economy, stabilizing it, creating the jobs, generating the income, repaying the credit. Then there's the question of how to earn the international finance needed to pay for what we're going to import. You know, we can stop importing oil tomorrow and save ourselves an awful lot of money, but then have to think very creatively about how we use energy differently and what different energies we use. Um, And we're not thinking about that creatively at the moment because we're not allowed to. You know, I'm a great fan of geothermal energy, of digging down, down into the volcanic center and deriving energy from there. And I'm told you can do this, that the Danes and the Dutch are doing this as well as the Icelandics. And we're not busy thinking about that because we're so busy infatuated with oil and gas. So I think, you know, aside from wind and, 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 and solar, there are other forms of energy. If we were freed up to look into them and to invest in them, uh, we could uh, we could actually find other ways of of generating the energy that we need. But we may also, and this I think is the the, the difficult lesson, we may have to learn to live with less energy. We may have to learn to live without uh, the kind of energy that's fueled expansion and extraction over the last few decades. And, and, you know, and I think that'll be a, a simpler and probably a world in which there'll be greater well-being than we have at the moment. I'm waffling away here now, Fergal, but... No, it's very, it's very interesting because I, I, I know um, I've done a, a couple of episodes on degrowth theory and I've also, uh, yeah. on the steady state yeah. economy as well. Yes. Um, and, you know, you can't get away from this, I think it's... Uh, Kevin Anderson was talking about this that that in, in a recent piece saying that you know the climate problem is it's not a uh, it's not a problem it's an outcome of a particular set of economic policies and so yeah. forth and it basically means uh, as well uh, you know the idea of a, a growing economy and so forth. Yeah. Where do you see these ideas being embraced? This idea because uh, growth is is just sacrosanct and such an important idea in in uh, haloed in uh, economic and financial circles. It's the central edifice. It's the central edifice of neoliberal economics, basically. Um, but what's exciting to me is that there is a movement that's aimed at cracking down, cracking and cracking that edifice and breaking it up. And, and, and I think that's happening. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. This is, this month is the 50th anniversary of uh, Donella Meadows's um, wonderful publication, Limits to Growth. 50 years ago, she was arguing, she and her team were arguing that there were limits. And now there is a, a movement, mainly a, a young, amongst young people, uh, that call themselves the degrowth movement. And they're going to break it up. Um, they're going to break up this thing. And it's only the old diehards in, econo- in the economics profession who will, you know, yeah. where there's death, there's hope is what yes. I say. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so, but the point is what's so unfair is it's the old diehards that have created this mess and who are going to probably die without paying for it. And we're asking the young people to pay for it. And I fight, and I, as one of those people, I mean, I've got white hair. I'm responsible for this as much as anyone. Um, you know, we're asking young people to pay the price for this. And I find that on the one hand, it gives me hope. And on the other hand, I think it's profoundly unjust and unfair. Yeah, yes. 
Very interesting. Yeah, it's a lot. Very often, uh, what's presented as as economic uh, logic has an underlying political, uh, ah. uh, you know, structure. That these are political decisions, and they're presented yeah. in economic terms and so forth. But I'm also wondering about. Uh, the uh, idea of uh, you know of, of a small green state or a, a large green state or the increased role of the state in in various ways uh, to enable the transition and much of this will presumably be done in some kind of emergency context. <laughs> We've seen in the UK uh, how corrupt and uh, badly organized yeah. the response to COVID was, the vast sums of money that were, you know, uh, siphoned off by cronies yeah. of, of, of the Tories and so forth. Yeah. Um, what about the political structures that we have at the moment? Are they responsive enough to be able to deal with kinds of challenges that they will need to do in a, in a responsible way? You know, I think they, I think, they are, um, but the, the financial system makes it impossible. And if I could just explain why, in a world of capital mobility, where Amazon and Google and, and Facebook can st- sweep their money under the carpet and, and dump it in an Irish tax haven, that strips the democratic the power of the democratic state. That means the politicians at Westminster have far less power today than they had when I was a young girl in the 1970s and where it was, you know, considered sexy to be a parliamentarian, that parliament was a place where there was political power. Slowly but surely we've eroded the democratic power of the state and we've given it to to Amazon and to Silicon Valley and so on. And then we wonder why our politicians are, A, corrupt and B, um, powerless and why we the people are disillusioned with the system. If we were to manage capital mobility, if we were to say to Amazon, "Thou shalt pay thou taxes here at home, otherwise you're not allowed to make profits here, uh, and we will bar you from making profits here if you don't pay taxes," that'll change suddenly. Parliament will gain greater power. The Treasury will gain a greater revenues. It'll it re- restore greater balance, if you like, to the political process. So for me, the corruption of the democratic process is actually by finance, by money, by the fact that money is unregulated, is free to flow across borders, it's free to do as it please. There's very little restraint on the movement of money, as there are as the Russian oligarchs have proved, and heavy restraints on the movement of labor, of course. Um, and and when that changes. I believe you'd restore faith in the democratic process. And, you know, we're always going to have bad guys, bad eggs, and so on and so forth. But we never had this level of corruption uh, under the more balanced and managed uh, system of the Bretton Woods system, 45 to 71. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's developed since then. So I, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic about that. But it, again, and I find it really hard to talk to people about this because they say, how can you possibly say we've got a, restore capital manage, management of capital mobility I, I can't do that who does that you know well, the state can do that you know the central bank could do that it's perfectly possible ask china ask the russians you know we know that it can be done um but but if people feel powerless they don't feel able to do that they, they don't even think about it frankly yeah. and, and for me that has to change 
it doesn't sound like you're hugely optimistic on some of the trends that uh, some might say rhetoric or in terms of G7, looking at a global minimum corporate tax rate, yeah. uh, the kinds of discussions that are going on around uh, tax havens, the commitments of corporations to uh, net zero and things like that, that the finance and corporate worlds are on board, uh, you know, COP26 or along the way yeah. that this is a a seminal uh moment uh exxon i think is net zero now supposedly um saudi arabia is too <laughs> um, uh, what's going on um yeah yeah so the thing is that um i think you know i think the world is headed in one of two directions we're headed towards world war three or else we're headed towards opening our eyes to what's happening, understanding what's going on, and developing the political world to change quickly. Um, and, and urgent transformation is possible. We've seen it. I, I, I grew up in South Africa. I never believed for a moment that a militarized nationalist government, which was the nationalist government of South Africa, which was heavily militarized, could suddenly be over, overthrown overnight and almost without violence, actually. I mean, there was violence, but it was almost a peaceful overthrow. I never believed for a moment the Soviet Union could collapse in 1989. So, you know, we've had massive transformations in my lifetime, and I know they're possible, and I know they happen very quickly. They can happen very quickly. But right now, we seem to be heading, we seem to be wanting to repeat the lessons of the 1930s and, and resolve our tensions through another the world war and i'm pessimistic about that because we don't have the political leadership to prevent that in my view um we have a almost senile leadership in the united states we have a i'm afraid rather corrupt leadership here and the europeans are beginning to get their act together but but only just um so we could we could go towards world war three or else the people could rise up and say, no, <laughs> we want a different world and a different world is possible. And yeah, yeah. I'm on that side and I'm not going to give up until we've all tried. Yeah. Well, on, on that optimistic note, what's next for you? What, what What's your, your, your uh, research agenda? What are you focusing on? What's in your mind? I'm trying, I want to, my publisher, I promised my publisher I'd write a book on the international system for you know the public, for, not for academia and not for the um, cognoscenti, but for the women in the street, basically. And uh, I've been struggling to write this, partly because of the diversion of the pandemic. That was hard to think about. Now this war is kind of, but you know, I've now really got to get down to this book. And even though it feels 